raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report that highlights the Aquarid meteor shower on display in next week's nighttime sky. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua has a hooked on fishing report on the Upper Delaware River for late April. Koshekton residents Aaron Feely and Ike Nahem expressed their compassion for Cuba regarding policies on U.S. government sanctions. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. In Washington, I'm Dale Wilman. A suspected tornado rolled through parts of Kansas overnight. Dozens of buildings were damaged and several people injured. We do have crews on the ground right now in Cedric County doing damage assessments, um, going door to door um, in the southeast part of the city, um, trying to give us information about how bad things may be in Cedric County. Julie Stimson is the Cedric County Emergency Management Director. In an interview with KSN-TV, she said there are power outages following the storm. Admiral Rachel Levine, the highest-ranking transgender official in U.S. history, is about to give a speech to medical students and young physicians at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports. Texas is one of a number of states all around the country that have recently introduced bills that target trans kids. Admiral Levine is a pediatrician by training. She says the medical community needs to step up. In the face of these politically motivated challenges that we're seeing in states, we need to stand up and be more vocal. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. She says trans youth need to be empowered and affirmed. She lists the ways the Biden administration has used policy to support them. She says she also wants to use her visibility as an open and proud transgender woman to advocate for more empathy and understanding. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Ukrainian forces are attempting to hold off a Russian advance in their country's south and east. That's where Russian forces are attempting to capture the country's Donbass region. U.S. analysts say the Russian advance is once again going more slowly than planned. The U.N., meanwhile, is attempting to broker an evacuation of civilians from the southern city of Mariupol. Ukraine's deputy agriculture minister, meanwhile, says he fears Russia is stealing massive amounts of grain from Ukrainian areas occupied by Russian troops. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has disrupted grain production and distribution, leading to rising food prices. NPR's Joanna Kikasis reports from Kyiv. Speaking on Ukrainian TV, Deputy Agriculture Minister Tadash Vysotsky said that farmers are trying to work during planting season despite constant shelling from Russian troops. He also accused Russia of stealing grain stored in occupied Ukrainian territory. He says there are roughly 1.5 million tons of grain in those occupied areas. Ukraine is known as Europe's breadbasket. It was a top global exporter of grains before the war. Russia is now blocking the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa, Ukraine's main export hub. Neighboring Romania is helping move some of those exports through the Black Sea port of Constanta. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, Kiev. 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has warned that his country could preemptively use its nuclear weapons if threatened. His comments came as he praised his top army officials for a massive military parade this week. That parade followed a string of missile tests in that country. You're listening to NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua has a Hooked on Fishing report that pertains to the Delaware River for late April. Koshekton residents Aaron Feely and Ike Nahem express their compassion for Cuba regarding policies on U.S. government sanctions. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. If you missed the Lyrid meteor shower in mid-April, you will have another opportunity to watch a meteor shower Wednesday and Thursday mornings. The Ada Aquarian meteor shower will reach its peak Thursday morning, but the shower has a broad peak, so Wednesday and Friday mornings of this week will also be a good time to watch. The waxing crescent moon will set around 11 p.m. on Wednesday, just before midnight on Thursday, and around 12.45 a.m. on Friday. This will leave the sky moonless for the early morning hours when Aquarius will be visible. Aquarius will be low in the east, but the meteors will appear in all parts of the sky. Given dark skies, the Eta Aquarids will produce 10 to 20 meteors per hour, but for our listening area, the number of meteors will be fewer as the Aquarids will favor more southerly latitudes. The further south you go, the later into the morning the sun will rise. The later sunrise means more dark time to watch for meteors and it will allow Aquarius to climb higher in the sky. The Aquarid meteors are bits and pieces of the famous Comet Halley. This will be the first of two times that Earth crosses the path of Comet Halley. The other time will be in late October, giving rise to the Orionan meteor shower. Look to the east in the hours before sunrise over the next several days for your chance to catch an early morning meteor shower for the second time in as many months. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up.
For Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua bringing you Hooked on Fishing. High water, shad, trout, and lots of bugs greet the spring river season. We are experiencing full reservoirs and a bit of spill and high water releases on most of our area's rivers and eventually into the upper Delaware. The fish of the Delaware have been eating alewives that come over the dams on our river. Most of the predatory fish are happy and healthy this spring. American shad are strong ocean swimmers that start up our river in early April and are now throughout the entire Delaware from Hancock to Philadelphia. Shad fishermen are targeting them everywhere. You want 50 degree or above water temperatures, cloudy skies, or morning and evening, which are ideal for shad fishing. The brown trout are happy to be eating the first mayfly hatch of the year, blue quills and hendricksons, also some caddis. They are also happy about the warming water temperatures. They are active and feeding a lot right now. Rainbow trout are still doing their spawning rituals in the Delaware River's tributaries. Rainbows are not to be targeted during this time, and they will be better targeted in mid to late May and beyond. The spring is a great time to observe the river coming to life through fish migrations and bug hatches. I wish everyone a happy and safe fishing season. Please know the regulations on the water you are fishing and wear a life jacket when boating. Have fun. For Radio Catskill, Farming Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua, casting off. For Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Rosie Starr. Koshekton residents Aaron Feely and Ike Nahem are thinking locally and express their compassion for Cuba regarding policies on U.S. government sanctions. Among many issues, they're aware of food resources that are needed to feed folks on this Caribbean island just off the south coast of Florida. Ike and Aaron took the time to meet and chat with me in Narrowsburg, New York, after they returned from their trip to Cuba in late winter of 2022. I was interested in their idea that food resources produced along the Delaware River Valley might be shared with Cubans in need of them. Here is part of our conversation. My name is uh, Ike Nahem. I'm uh, with... uh Aaron Feely Nahum also. We're uh, part of activities that are taking place across the United States, Canada, and really around the world, uh, caravans and activities against the U.S. economic war, blockade, embargo, sanctions against Cuba. 
and we've formed a new group. We hope to make this regular, the Upper Delaware Friends of U.S.-Cuba Normalization, and we're here to... uh, protest with Cuban families in Miami and elsewhere against U.S. policies that really attempt to strangle Cuba and uh, we're for the normalization of relations. These uh, sanctions have been around for a long time. Bring us into the present moment what you'd like to see. Well, the sanctions against Cuba were significantly tightened in the middle of a pandemic where Cuba has actually done some amazing work in creating its own vaccines that are being used around the world, vaccinating its entire population. But during this pandemic, the Trump administration, which was in power at the time, really significantly used that to tighten the sanctions and the uh, economic embargo uh, and political hostility against Cuba. And then many people hoped that the Biden administration would go back to the policies in the end of the Obama administration and reverse some of those. There were actually 243 measures against Cuba. But instead, Biden actually deepened them, continued and deepened them. And as a result, uh, you know, now you have a bipartisan campaign to deepen the embargo. And it's uh, it's outrageous. And it has, you mentioned, it has, it's nothing new. This has been the, with some conjunctural up and downs, the consistent policy of bipartisan Washington ever since the uh, triumph of the Cuban Revolution in 1959 and the beginning of the uh, economic sanctions. And right now they are tightening. There's a We just got back from Cuba. We can talk about that, Aaron and I. Uh, and we saw some of the impact. We brought humanitarian supplies of insulin, for example, And just the small amount that we brought was very needed because it's very hard for Cuba to buy things that have any uh, U.S. component in them because of the blockade. So there's a lot of life-saving medical equipment, food, and stuff like that that's impacted on Cuba because of this uh, draconian, asphyxiating uh, U.S. uh, economic aggression. Okay. You mentioned the Trump administration. We're in the Biden administration. What's on tap? Well, I think that the Biden administration is under a certain amount of pressure. They don't really talk about it that much, especially in the Americas and around the world. The United Nations votes every year, and there's another vote coming up overwhelmingly against the U.S. uh, commercial, financial, and economic uh, embargo. So it's illegal in terms of international law, although they're not able to enforce that. But it's sort of ironic. The U.S. uh, appeals to the United Nations to condemn uh, Russia for its illegal invasion of Ukraine. But every year, the United Nations condemns the U.S. policy against Cuba, which causes as much suffering and has a terrible uh, impact on the people of Cuba. And uh, they try to use these pretexts of, you know, democracy and human rights and all these things. But it's really, uh, if I can abbreviate, BS, because if you look at the U.S. record in Latin America and the Caribbean, I say the U.S. government, I don't think this is something that the American people support, that they have a history of supporting undemocratic, pro-oligarchy regimes in Latin America. And and Cuba has a record, actually, of being on the side of people fighting for 
democratic freedoms and against dictatorships that have been supported by the United States. So I think this is unfair, unjust, and illegal. And really, if people knew the truth about what was being done in their name, and also if they knew the truth about Cuba's amazing contributions in just the field of medicine that could help the U.S. people. They, Cuba has medications that are internationally recognized and used for treatment of diabetic ulcers, foot ulcers, for lung cancer that extends people's lives. Roswell Laboratories in upstate New York, they have an ongoing program collaborating with Cuban medical scientists around uh, uh, life-extending lung cancer vaccines and and drugs. There's just so much that uh, normal relations, New York farmers upstate could sell their produce to Cuba. You know, that would be wonderful. You got a little bit close to home. We're in the Delaware River Valley here. We're in the Catskill Mountain region. A lot of people like to act locally, think globally, trying to make the community aware of the embargo and the situation that you're talking about. Tell the community why it's so important for them to be aware of this or get involved. Tell me your name. My name is Erin Feely Nahum. I think we need to look at our farmers. For many years, farmers have been trying to break through the blockade, the embargo. They'd like to sell their products. Cuba does not produce a lot of its food. Since its dependence years ago, They're starting to do more agriculture, but they would really benefit from the farmers, the produce that could be offered. It's only 90 miles away from Miami, farther from here, but easily it could be a whole nother area of export for our farmers. That's number one. But everybody seems afraid in Congress to take a stand at this time. But I think that our farmers deserve to have the right to sell their product to who needs it. And Cuba would be, they don't have apples. You know, we have many apples here. They don't have the produce that we could offer. They depend on seasonal vegetables. That's all they can do. Have you talked to farmers about this? I've talked to several people. There have been two letters from area farmers as well as farmers nationwide that have tried to write to Biden asking him to allow them to sell to Cuba. It's not only upstate New York, but really throughout the South, there's a lot of uh, relations in the past. I mean, U.S. policy over the years has had its ups and downs. They've sometimes loosened the embargo. They've sometimes tightened it. They've sometimes made it harder for people to travel. They've sometimes made it easier for people to travel. But the constant ever since the Cuban Revolution in 1959 has been to maintain this legal framework of sanctions and embargo. And so it affects the whole country. Now, Cuba is a small country. It's only 11.3 million people. United States is a huge market. So Cuba is a tiny market in terms of the material incentive. But at the same time, that's it's not, of course, individual farmers in New York State and across the U.S. would benefit from Cubans being able to buy products and have free trade with the United States. But it's not a huge market. And for the U.S. government, unfortunately, they've calculated that the example of Cuba in this volatile world situation that we're in, where 
especially with the in the pandemic era, which is not over yet, but hopefully is being stabilized, that there's a lot of volatility, especially in the Americas. And Cuba is an example because Cuba's performance around the pandemic compared to other countries in Latin America, Cuba's example in terms of its medical system, in terms of its education system, despite the U.S. blockade, is an example that I think the U.S. government uh, fears. And, uh, you know, they got a point to fear it because the U.S. policies have generally favored the uh, what they call in Latin America neoliberal solutions, that is austerity, belt tightening for the working class, and meanwhile, a handful uh, are making out like bandits. In fact, that sounds like the U.S. social structure today. So I think there is an example even for the U.S., and we find that uh, a layer of young people around the United States and around the world is coming forward and identifying with Cuba. And so that's what we're trying to do to increase the pressure on Biden. Another reason is also the medical the medicines that people could get that are life-saving. There are five vaccines that were developed. Three of them have an efficacy rate of 92.8%. You haven't heard about that here. The various vaccines that they have for hepatitis, meningitis, all of those things are unable to be purchased by us here in America. And why is that fair? The people upstate would do very well to be able to utilize many of these medicines that are available through Cuba. Well, I know that we have regulations. The Food and Drug Administration has regulations about vaccines. I mean, that could be one of the reasons why it's a problem. I don't know. But I'd like to get back to this idea with the farmers. There's a lot of interest with young people in Sullivan County and Wayne County with agriculture. And I know there's always been a big issue about the dairy industry here. Do you think that Cuba would take the milk from this area? Do they drink milk? Is dairy part of their diet? Very much so. They could use milk. They could use the produce. They could use chickens. They could use beef. They can use everything. Cuba does not have a strong system of food production at this time. They're trying to improve it. They do mostly almost all organic foods that they do have. They have co-op food farms they're doing, and they're encouraging more and more the production of agriculture. But yes, surely right now people are bringing powdered milk in order to supplement what they are unable to get. So yes, they would use dairy. The impact of the U.S. embargo is that there are shortages. It exacerbates their own internal problems. It makes everything much worse for them in terms of food. So there are shortages right now. But at the same time, it's not an individual farmers in New York State and elsewhere could certainly benefit, especially family farmers, uh, from being able to sell freely and back and forth with Cuba. But it's a small market, so this is really more of a political question. And if I could refer to what you mentioned earlier about uh, the regulation, this is a smokescreen because the U.S. has intervened in the World Health Organization to try to delay 
the approval of Cuban vaccines, which are actually being used successfully, not only in Cuba, but in many countries around the world. So this is a smokescreen. The CDC actually issued an outrageous edict, which they later adjusted because it was so outrageous that it put in Cuba on a, a list of countries unsafe to travel because of COVID, when actually the opposite is the case. And Biden made the equally outrageous statement back in uh, the last summer where he offered to try to show that he was some kind of a humanitarian while he was tightening the blockade, that he offered to give Cuba vaccines when they produce their own vaccines. So there is a constant lying against Cuba by the Trump administration and now, sadly, uh, also by the Biden administration to the point where we can say right now this is Biden's blockade. This is Biden's embargo, and he's going to be coming under... Uh, increasing pressure across the Americas and in the United Nations, you know, around this campaign. There's going to be votes in the U.S. General Assembly for 29 straight years. The U.N. General Assembly has voted overwhelmingly against the U.S. economic uh, embargo. Except for the U.S. veto in the U.N. Security Council, it would have been passed there in the same way that a veto that Russia could use uh, to, to condemn their invasion of, of Ukraine. So these chickens are going to come home to roost, I think, for the Biden administration. There's a summit of the Americas scheduled in June in Los Angeles, and that's Cuba is going to be a hot, hot topic at that. And I hope that the Biden administration will capitulate to the growing world pressure and end this uh, draconian uh, policy against Cuba. Ike and Aaron, the two of you speak with such intelligence and passion on this subject. Why is it so important to the both of you? Because it's unfair, it's unjust. It's a policy which is based on lies and based on fear. Cuba has so much to offer us. If you look at our website, us-cubanormalization.org, you'll see a Saving Lives campaign that we began back at the beginning of the pandemic, when Cuba, Cuba's medical system could just help us so much. It's not only the fact that they have amazing culture, that they support artists and musicians, they have an amazing um, biopharmaceutical business. It's just an unfair uh, policy, which is built on fear. The fear that the U.S. thinks that it offers an alternative, and it does. It will offer our kids who are no longer able to even pretend that the American dream applies to them. It offers them an alternative economic system that could work, a system which puts the workers first. That's all very true. Up here in the upper Delaware, and we love it, and we have friends here. We've been involved in this uh, activity, this movement, for many years. We're a growing movement all over the United States, Canada, and the world, and we're trying to bring a little piece of this to our county, to our area, and build a movement. Uh, we have films and videos. People can check out our website. We've just established, and we hope it'll grow, the uh, Upper Delaware Friends of U.S.-Cuba Normalization. And we hope to be back here on the bridge in warmer weather and with bigger numbers in the future. Well, I have to say, my favorite music when I really want to get up and moving is Cuban Latin. I feel the influence of many cultures in that music. Do you think that food and music could bring people together to bring awareness to what you're saying? You don't have to be uh, 
necessarily as political and passionate about the cause as Aaron and I are uh, to appreciate the benefits of U.S.-Cuba normalization for average uh, folks. Uh, the cultural exchanges is one example. You know, in the last period of the Obama administration, uh, one of the great benefits of the relative loosening of the blockade was uh, cultural exchanges with Cuban artists. And we could do that here. Why can't we do that in Sullivan County? Why can't we get a Cuban dance troupe? The Cuban culture and arts and films and, and dance and music is in great demand all over the world. And believe me, we could uh, we could organize some, some beautiful stuff up here. We but we have to end the blockade so that people can travel freely. You say people are interested in this. If other people would like to get more information on what you're doing, especially locally, what is the website? Where do they get more information? US-CubaNormalization.org. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. That was Kashuktan residents Aaron Feely and Ike Nahem. Thinking locally to express their compassion for Cuba regarding policies on U.S. government sanctions. For Farm and Country and Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Evan Padua. Special thanks goes to our guests, Koshekton residents Aaron Feely and Ike Nahem for sharing their thoughts on U.S.-Cuba sanction policies. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org on the next On Being, Padraig Otuma, an extraordinary healer in our world of fracture. And at the end of the day, the reality is that whether we change or whether we stay the same, these questions will remain. Who are we to be with one another?